So Genesis chapter 6, we come upon one of the more popular stories of the Bible, Noah and the ark and going through the flood, and yet we also come upon one of the more controversial passages in Scripture. Maybe not controversial, but more so confusing for many people. Now, keep in mind the book of Genesis divides itself up by looking at four major events that took place from chapters 1 to 11. Uh, We looked at the fall, uh, or sorry, the creation, then the fall, then we see the flood as we'll see tonight, and then the Tower of Babel. Those are the four major events, and then chapters 12 all the way to the end of Genesis is four major people we look at, which is, of course, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. And so that's kind of how the book is divided up. So we're looking at that third major event that is really kind of a a section in Genesis here. And we read here in verse 1, if you got that open, Genesis 6, verse 1. Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. Let me just stop right there. So after we had looked at the genealogies in Genesis chapter 5, we've seen this long list of people born from the line of Seth and the long ages that they lived. We see that, you know, Methuselah, the the longest uh, or the oldest person in the Bible lived 969 years, chapter 5, verse 27. And many of them lived these great and long lives here. And as they lived long, long, guess what? Uh, They were able to just keep reproducing. And so children are being born to generation after generation. Just the, the population, you see, just began to explode, as it says here, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. So we're seeing a great population explosion happening at this time, even though we're just in Genesis chapter six. You would think, oh, there's just a few people mingling around there. No, with the long ages of people and living long lives, healthy lives, of course, Genesis, the way the creation was, it seems like there was this kind of, you know, barrier up in the sky creating just like this greenhouse effect where it's just like, Perfect conditions, no UV, harmful rays coming in and exposing that on people. So people living healthy, long lives, and so children are being born to them. Now, some estimates have the world at the time of Noah at billions of people, and some have even said billions and billions of people. Either way, many believe that the population in Noah's day was at par with what we see in our day, if not more. And we're going to talk about that more in a minute here. But first, let's look at that kind of controversial or confusing passage that I alluded to earlier that we see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2, when we read that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. Now, there's a lot of different interpretations regarding what is happening here and specifically who are the sons of God that go into the daughters of men and and produce what seems like a, a weird kind of offspring. Well, first of all, many have said that the sons of God are the godly line of Seth. Now again, we saw that transition from chapter 4, verse 24, where it talked about, you know, Cain, and then going into verse 25, that talked about the line of Seth. 
And this godly line, and it says in chapter 4, verse 26, that for Seth to him also son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. So we see this kind of division where Cain, we know, first murder, and the family from Cain just seemed to continue on spiraling in sin and evil and wickedness. But then we see this transition or this comparison to the line of Seth. And chapter 5 is detailing that entire kind of genealogy and line of Seth because that's the line that the Messiah is going to come through. So we see it, it sees apparent there's this godly line. And so some have believed that the sons of God is speaking of this line of Seth and that they went into the daughters of men referring to the, the offspring of Cain. So that's what some people believe is happening here, that Seth began to marry ungodly offspring of Cain, and God had oftentimes called his people, right, not to marry or intermarry with the pagan or wicked people around them, called them to be preserving, because again, that's the line, the, the people that God was going to bring the Messiah through. So some believe that the sons of God are speaking of the line of Seth. Secondly, some believe that the sons of God is speaking of fallen angels that came and had physical relationships with the daughters of men, and that produced this kind of transhuman offspring because it says in verse 4 that there were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward. We'll get to that in a minute as we get into this a little bit more. But the third view or kind of idea as to who the sons of God are is that some believe that the sons of God are speaking of Again, some that were from the line of Seth who were demon-possessed. And they chose wives from the daughters of Cain to go and carry out the wicked schemes of Satan. Now, the question is, <laughs> which is the right one here? Well, listen, we don't know for sure, all right? We, we can't say for certain that it's this or that. And, and the thing is that you're going to find a lot of, of great Bible scholars, great Bible teachers that will hold to... Uh, these different views. Some will be in that first camp where they believe it's the, the godly line of Seth. Some believe that it's fallen angels. Some believe that it's, it's speaking of uh, those from Seth, uh, the descendants of Seth that were demon-possessed. You'll have good company in whatever view you hold because there's great Bible teachers that are across the board on this, on what they view as the right interpretation of these things. So I'm going to tell you what I adhere to. And let me just preface this by saying these are not matters to get up in arms over and fight and quarrel over because these have nothing to do with that matters of salvation, all right? This is just fun stuff to talk about. These are not matters of, oh, I'm leaving the church if you believe that, or I can't have fellowship with you if you believe that. So there's nothing to do with that. So we can still fellowship whether you agree with me or not, or if you have a different view, that is totally fine, all right? So... If you want to have the right view, you'll listen to what I'm going to... No, that's not the case at all. But let me, let me read again, just to give us some context now, from verses 4 to 7. We stopped in verse 3. Let's read verse 4 to 7 here. Let me read this. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I've made them. Let me just stop right there. Now, 
I don't believe that the sons of God is referring to the natural lineage of Seth. And, and that it's the descendants of Seth that are intermarrying the daughters of Cain. It, this seems like an extreme judgment that's coming for this sort of commingling of people that's happening. Plus, why would they produce such a, a, a different kind of people when there's giants, these men of renown, it says here? You wouldn't think that just two physical people or you know human people coming together would cause something like this. You could take a number of children today, right? You go in our Sunday school classes and take a number of children, line them up and have no idea by looking at them what their parents are like, right? You could have a tall kid that's got very short parents. You could have a very short child that's got very tall parents and wonder what's, what's happened there. So it doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to have the immediate kind of offspring that is going to mark what's, what's going to happen here. So the idea of the sons of God being fallen angels would be an interpretation that I would lean to. Now we know from Job chapter one, verse six, it says this, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. So sons of God speaks of angelic beings here. It's also referenced in Job chapter two, verse one and Job 38, verse seven. So we see elsewhere in the Bible that sons of God is a reference to angels. Now, the idea here, these sons of God being angelic beings may sound very odd and strange to you, but when you look at what's happening here, it seems that there's something supernatural that is taking place that caused God to respond as strongly and as harshly as he did. There seems to be something beyond just a, a human act that's causing God to respond this way and that's producing this kind of offspring. And again, when you look at various New Testament scriptures, you see some references that I believe would lend some support to this view. Look at what we read in 1 Peter 3, verse 19 to 20. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Then in Jude chapter, or Jude verse six, and the angels, notice this, who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. He is reserved in everlasting chains until darkness for the judgment of the great day. Second uh, Peter chapter two, verse four to six also references these angels that are, are being chained in darkness. So there's references to what would seem like these fallen angels, these demons that have left this proper domain and have intermingled with the, the daughters of men and are being reserved now for a specific special judgment because of the heinous act that had taken place here in the days of Noah. Now some have suggested, oh listen, hold on now, that, that view is incompatible with scripture. Why do they say so? Well, because remember when this woman came or the, 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 the Pharisees came to, to Jesus with this problem, this question about the, the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. And they came wondering, this wife that was married to the man, he died, she married his brother, he died, and then so forth, all through the, the line of brothers, which, you know, basically at that point you're going like, the seventh brother, I'm staying away from this woman, this is trouble. But also the seven brothers die and they wonder, so if there's really resurrection, Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And look at what Jesus says in Matthew 22, verse 29 to 30. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken 
not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So a lot of people say, look at that. There's proof that this cannot be angels or fallen angels because angels aren't given in marriage. But listen, that verse doesn't say that they are like sexless beings that don't have the capability of doing anything like that because we know that angels have appeared before men as men, as people, that was very indistinguishable. In fact, it tells us in Hebrews 13, 2, to entertain strangers because some have unwittingly entertained angels in doing so. In other words, there was no kind of difference in appearance or, or thought. And then you've got the case in Sodom and Gomorrah when the angels came in, two angels came in, Lot took them in, and the people of the town came and beat down the door to say, bring those two out so that we may know them carnally, it tells us. They wanted to have relationships with them. These were two angels that appeared again every bit. Now, they didn't come out and say, oh, sorry, can't oblige you because we're angels. Can't no, there was no dispute over the functionality of that here. So... This view is one that I hold to that I think when we line up with other scriptures, we begin to see there's something that's going on here that produced an offspring that created great wickedness, giants, and that created something so dark that God decided to judge the whole world. Now, the other view is that demonic spirits simply possessed men and perhaps possessed these daughters of men as well. That could be what is meant when it says that they took wives or perhaps they, they overtook, they possessed them. And the idea here is that under demonic influence, the offspring continued to get more and more wicked in kind of carrying out that, that agenda of the wicked one. Now, it, it doesn't in my mind, account for the abnormality in the size of the offspring. It doesn't seem to line up again, but that's a view that's very possible. But I'd hold to the idea that the, the sons of God are speaking of fallen angels that have come in and, and had this, this relationship with daughters of men and created this offspring and, and just added to the wickedness going on in the world. So regardless of what it is, what we're seeing here, what we're focusing on is that this was a wicked time. This was a time of, of great uh, just sin and evil and wickedness. Jesus, interestingly, uses the days of Noah as a comparison to what the days will be like when Jesus comes again. Remember what it said in Matthew 24, verse 37, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So what's the days of Noah like? Well, we see a, a great kind of list or, or characteristic here from these days of Noah, first of all, like we've seen, increase in population, sexual perversion, demonic activity, evil thoughts, as we'll see, in, or we read in verse 5 already, and then as we will see in verse 11, corruption and violence on earth. So let's talk about that increase in population a little bit here. The world in Noah's day was every bit as populated as it is today. Now, if the growth rate in the pre-flood world was equal to the growth rate in 2000 at 
0.012, there could have been about 750 million people at the time of the flood. However, given the extremely long lifespans prior to the flood, the growth rate could have been much higher. Increasing the rate by just 0.001 would put the population close to 4 billion at the flood. Again, conservative measures there, which I believe uh, the, the days of Noah were most likely beyond what we're at today. Some have estimated the population at the time of the flood to be in the billions of billions. Uh, John Corson says this, you see, from the time Noah got off the ark, it took until 1867 for the world to reach the one billion mark. But it only took from 1867 to 1935, less than 100 years, for the population to reach 2 billion. And from 1935, it only took until 1965 to reach over 6 billion. Due to the 250,000 people added to our planet every 24 hours, the Earth's population will now double every 15 years. In other words, what we're seeing is not just uh, an increase in population, but a, a population explosion where it is, it is rapidly and exponentially just growing as it was in the days of Noah. We're living in those similar kinds of times. So much so that people today are having more and more of kind of an idea like we've got to curb this population, right? We've got to stop this this population growth. So much more. I don't know if you've seen these ads. These are popping up in Vancouver. These ads from one planet to one child or one planet, one child.org where it says there, the most loving gift you can give your first child is to not have another. I mean, this is what's happening right now through this organization that they are promoting this idea of, listen, let's not be fruitful and multiply like God said, Let's be limiting these kinds of things. So there's an awareness that population is growing, but I mean, my goodness, you can't tell me that we don't have enough room on this planet for more people. I mean, do you know how much space we got on this planet? It's ridiculous. Anyways, uh, second thing that we saw was uh, in comparison to Noah's day and, and our day here, sexual perversion. Just as there was an unholy intermingling Happening in Noah's day, we see continual pushing of the envelope when it comes to sexual perversion in our day. And the horrible thing is that this agenda that gets pushed on, it gets pushed on, on children to kind of open their eyes to these things. The stuff that's going on in schools today with, with soji and this kind of sexual curriculum. I mean, parents that have their kids in school, this is happening in elementary school. This is happening at, at grade one and, and grade two. It's, it's, it's crazy to see the kinds of things that we think or that you know, uh, school trustees feel that we need to be teaching our children. And they're being this robbed of innocence today and being open to these things. And now you know we've got drag queen story time. If you've seen this or not, I mean, here's a couple of pictures that just make you want to run for the hills, I think. You know, I don't know what it makes you want to do. Vomit maybe, but... Um, but we see this happening in schools. So it's like, let's open our children to just being aware of all this kind of weirdness and perversion that's going on in the world. Just this week, a, a popular YouTuber was recording himself on, on YouTube playing a game and talking about how he thinks that, you know, the laws for child pornography need to, you know, go out the window. And this, this is another thing that's just going on in our society today. More and more people talking about and being open towards, you know, pedophilia. Uh, uh, we're seeing just sexual perversion just growing. Things that, 
you would have never thought 10 to 15 years ago you would ever see in your lifetime, and now we're seeing these things just coming into society. It wasn't much different, I think, in Noah's days. Jesus says, as were the days of Noah, so it will be the coming of the Son of Man. Demonic activity was another thing that was happening this day. In Noah's day that we see again happening more and more today. I think I need to put that slide back up again of the drag queen story time because that's, I think, very demonic in itself. But we're, listen, we're living in an evil world. And, and you know, I've never given much attention to the devil or credit to the devil in a sense of, I don't want to give him any, any thought, any focus in a sense, but more and more I'm seeing just that undercurrent of the wicked one at work in our world and in our society and the kinds of things that are happening. And, and we need to be aware of that, be praying against that, but understand that there is a, a great evil agenda that's taking place that the enemy and, and this demonic activity is, is pushing through. Now, it tells us in verse four that this unholy union created giants. Now, the Hebrew word for that is Nephilim, and it means fallen ones. So again, a reference, it would seem, to these fallen angels that have created this transhuman race. When the Israelites, remember, spied out the land of Canaan, there were those 10 that came back with a bad report saying, oh, no, no, we can't go in there. We've seen the giants. We've seen the Nephilim in there. Now, how they survived the flood, we don't know. If maybe they didn't survive, they were, but then again, this was kind of a reoccurrence of demonic activity happening. We don't know, but these are the fallen ones here that is being talked about. And then we see uh, evil thoughts that are taking place in verse five. That the, look at that, let me read that again, verse five. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I don't think I need to expand too much on how this relates to today, but in Noah's day, every thought was continually evil. That's not a pretty place to be when you're walking around and everybody around you is just focused on evil. But we have to realize that as much as the enemy uses the mind as kind of that battleground, you know, to tempt us, that we need to take every thought captive. Here in those day, every thought was continually evil, and we got to be on guard and take every thought captive, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 6, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Do you see that? Bringing every thought into captivity. Oh, we have every, every bit of a propensity to be dwelling on evil thoughts or wicked, sinful thoughts, lustful thoughts. We have every propensity to do that, but we need to take every thought captive, as Paul says. Don't entertain those things. Don't let your mind dwell on those things that are of evil. Take those things captive. Bring them into the obedience of Christ and to his word. Now, we'll get to that last kind of comparison, uh, uh, the wickedness that's going on. We'll get to that last one and violence and all that later. But what's interesting in the book of Genesis is that through the book of Genesis, there's various literary patterns that are used to really bring awareness and emphasis to certain 
themes and, and ideas. And uh, I want to draw our attention to one of those that we see in verse 2 where it says that the sons of God, um, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. The pattern is the same pattern that was seen in Genesis 3, verse 6. If you want to just flip over a page or two to Genesis 3, verse 6. Because notice what we read there. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took. She took of its fruit and ate. It's the same thing that we see the sons of God. They saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves. It's a pattern that we see repeated also in, in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13. The idea here is that man is made a moral, a free moral agent, and that there are things that we're going to see as attractive, but yet are not good. Neither of these two examples had a positive outcome that we see with Eve in Genesis 3 and what we see here in Genesis 6. Neither of them had a positive outcome. This pattern works as a warning for us that God chooses what is good and pleasant, not to, not to rob us, not to keep us away, but to show us what is good and pleasant so that we're not the ones determining that looks good, I'm going to partake of that. There's this pattern genesis of seeing, being attracted to, and taking for themselves. We see it with Lot, same thing. And how we need to be wise and careful to go, Lord, I'm not the one that determines what's good and, and beautiful you are. Lord, I want to I follow that. I want to keep myself out of trouble. And, and so without being that free moral agent, we need to be again protecting ourselves, guarding ourselves, taking every thought captive to be sure that it's being brought into the obedience of Christ. Now, it says in verse 6 here, And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his spirit. Now, that's kind of an odd statement to make. It almost sounds as if, you know, God had felt, I, I've made a mistake here. I've done something that I'm, I'm regretting that I did. And it kind of sounds a bit like that. But we know that God makes no mistakes, okay? God doesn't make any mistakes. He's not regretting anything. Or, or, or like that. the King James says that, that this repented the Lord. It simply means that God had to change direction in what he would have desired to do. His desire was for his people to follow him, to walk in obedience, to enjoy communion with him. But what happened? They went their own way. They broke away from what God desired for them. And, and, and the Lord is sorry about this. He's, he's grieved about this because he knows that what man is doing is he's choosing, they're choosing their own way as opposed to God's way, and they're choosing the way of death, as Proverbs tells us. God was greatly grieved at man's sin, and because man's sin had reached the level it did, God had to respond, and that's what's being spoken of here. God had to deal with their sin, but please understand what we're reading here because God did not delight in judgment. He was grieved by it, right? God is hurt by man's rebellion and by their sin because he knows that sin hurts men and it ultimately leads to death. So God is greatly grieved at the outcome of what's happening. Now again, at the end of verse seven, God said, I, I'm sorry that I've made them. And that can sound kind of harsh, maybe even callous, but that's the heart 
of a loving God who is saddened that humanity chose to go their way rather than God's way. See, God, again, had, had life and blessing in store for his people. All they had to do was simply follow him, follow his way. But they chose that way of death. And so the Lord is sorry. He's not sorry that they were made. He's sorry that this is what's happening and that sin is, is ruining them. Now, going back to verse three, I'm jumping around a little bit, I, I understand, but covering a lot of different kinds of things here. In verse three, we read that the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. See, there's coming a point where God is going to lift his presence from among them and they're gonna reap what they've sown. And that imagery, I think, reminds us of what God will do again soon. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 7, we read, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. That verse, I believe, in 2 Thessalonians 2 is speaking about that influencing power of the Holy Spirit in the church. And that the lawless lawless, uh, one, the Antichrist, is gonna be revealed when the spirit is removed. And when the spirit is removed, it means that the church is gonna be removed. And the spirit dwelling in the church, when that presence is gone, then the lawless one, the Antichrist, is gonna be revealed So there's coming a time when God will lift his spirit. And again, judgment will unfold. Now when God said there in verse three, at the end of verse three, yet his day shall be 120 years. Again, that can be interpreted a couple different ways. It can be interpreted that man's age or lifespan is only gonna reach to about 120 years now. Not gonna be living those 900 or 800 or 700 years anymore. No, 120, that's it. And some have interpreted it to mean that. And we know that as, you know, post-flood, that the people did not live those long lives any longer to that extent. And, and 120 years kind of was sort of a, a good average. But I believe more so what is being spoken of here is that God is addressing that he's going to give man 120 years before this judgment comes. In other words, I believe what God is demonstrating here is again that that long suffering, that mercy, because he's giving people an opportunity to repent. He's giving people an opportunity to turn to him. He's gonna have Noah building an ark for some 100 years. That's gonna be a, a real testimony. God's saying, <laughs> with every hammer that's coming down that nail, people, you're hearing uh, something that you need to wake up to and respond to. Giving people a chance. In fact, Peter writes in 2 Peter 3, 9, the reason that God is is slow, it seems. He says, the Lord's not slack concerning his promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I see that happening through the tribulation. You think, God, why would you allow seven years of tribulation, this time of this outpouring of your judgment and wrath, why would you extend that for seven years? Because God's giving people an opportunity to repent and turn to him. And he's, he's giving you know, call out to the gospel, angels flying through the sky, proclaiming the goodness of God, people giving an opportunity, two witnesses there that are standing by Jerusalem and just witnessing uh, of the Lord. God's giving opportunity. Seven years is not like, you know, where he's prolonging judgment because he's cruel and just making people suffer. He's giving people an opportunity, as he is here, 120 years, opportunity for people to turn to him and notice this here I love this in verse 8 but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord 
Another great but word that we see that we've been seeing in our study through Ephesians on Sundays here, right? When things look their bleakest or darkest, God is at work. And he's at work preserving one man and his family. And they will be instrumental in preserving now the human race and the rest of God's creation. But Noah, one man stands out in this wicked, populous world one man stands out. Interestingly, that this is the first time that that word grace is used. The first time it's used in the New Testament is in Luke 1, verse 30, where the angel said to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. That same word for grace. You found favor with God. You see, in both these passages, we recognize that grace is found, not earned. Grace is not something you achieve. Grace is something that is given to you freely. We, of course, know the importance of this grace from our study in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, as anyone should boast. We're saved by grace. It's all the work of God. It's not something that we've had to attain to or earn in any way. It's what God has given to us freely, unmerited, undeserving. That's grace. And Noah was one that found this grace. And it says here in verse 9 and 10, this is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was a just man. That, that means he was righteous. And again, that righteousness was not attributed to him because of his works. It wasn't attributed to him because he was a good person. It was attributed to him because of his faith, because of his response, his obedience to God. Hebrews 11 verse 7 says, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. I like that. Divinely warned of things not yet seen and yet he moved with godly fear. You see, up until this time, imagine Noah here. Because up until this time, I believe that it had not rained on the earth. That again, this canopy was over the earth and protecting and just bringing these, these perfect conditions. No rain was there. Many believe there was like a mist that just came up from the ground that watered obviously all the vegetation, but no rain. And God comes along and says, Noah, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to build me a boat. A boat, what's a boat? What are you talking about, God? I need you to build a boat because it's gonna rain. What is rain, God? What are you talking about? You're not helping me here. What do you mean? I got to build a boat to sail because the world's going to be getting rain and it's going to flood. Like, this is all just completely foreign to Noah. But what does Hebrews 11 7 tell us? That Moses or Noah moved with godly fear. He took action and he did so by faith. He's, he's dealing with things not yet seen, it tells us. He doesn't understand how this is all going to work, he doesn't understand what this is going to look like, but he follows the word of the Lord by faith. And he becomes this heir, again, the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith, it tells us in Hebrews eleven seven. 7. I love that. That's the righteousness we have 
is by faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something that we earn, attain to. It's not something we try to bring to the Lord and say, look at how good I'm being, God. Look at all the righteous things I'm doing. I guess that means I must be righteous now before you, God. Not at all. Because you know, Isaiah says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our righteousness comes by putting our faith in the only righteous one, Jesus Christ, who now by faith and by his grace clothes us in his righteousness. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 spells out for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then it says that Noah was perfect in his generations. Now it does not imply here that he's sinless. Don't, don't confuse the two. We think of that word and, and, and Paul uses that term regarding the law. He's perfect or blameless and we think, whoa. It's not implying that you know there's sinlessness here. That word means that simply he was blameless. He walked in integrity. In other words, nobody could come to Noah and have some kind of fault or accusation against him. Nobody could point the finger and go, Noah, you've done. And they'd be looking around going, I mean, what bad have you done, Noah? Because I haven't seen any evidence of that. Didn't mean he's, he's sinless, but nobody had any kind of accusation or fault against Noah here. So he's perfect and blameless. And I think it was that way because what does it say in verse 9 at the end? Because he walked with God. Noah just had this ongoing relationship with God. That idea of walk always speaks of this kind of forward motion. Noah was continuing to move in this obedience with the Lord. He was keeping in step with the things of God. Where God was going, Noah says, God, I want to follow. I want to be where you are. He walked with God. That's remarkable because the world around him was going completely opposite. Think about that. Think about how many times people have said, you know what? Man, I, I, I've tried to walk with the Lord, but it's so hard because my home or my school, my friends, my this, my that. And we can blame our environment or our surroundings and say, Lord, you got to give me a break here. It's kind of hard because of but can we just uphold Noah here and go, here's a man that's living in an increased populous world and everybody was doing wicked. Every thought was continually evil. But Noah says, I don't need to follow. I don't need to let that sway me and what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna walk with God. I'm gonna be a man that's just and, and perfect in my ways because I'm gonna follow the Lord. It goes to show us that we don't have to be products of our environment. Noah proves to us that we can stand out and stand above the evils of our society and surroundings, that we don't have to cave in and follow along. We can instead walk with God and follow the things of God. And that was the same term that was used for Enoch in, in Gen, uh, Genesis 5 verse 22, that Enoch walked with God and then in verse 24, he walked with God and he was not. God took him. Enoch, you see, as I mentioned last time, Enoch, I believe, is a great picture of the church that is raptured up and then comes the tribulation. And during the tribulation, God's gonna preserve and, and keep his righteous remnant of Israel. Noah represents the faithful Jewish remnant who God will keep and preserve through the tribulation. So Enoch and Noah here, I think, great 
pictures of the church and of Israel. Verse 11, we read this. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So here now we see that kind of last comparison that I had uh, mentioned earlier where, again, we saw the, the days of Noah being similar to our days because of the corruption and the violence on the earth that we see happening now. And you just have to turn on the evening news, don't you? <laughs> to get a glimpse of the kind of evil and wickedness that's going on to see the extent of the similarities that we're experiencing today that I'm sure Noah was seeing. It's an evil, wicked, and, and violent culture that we see before us. I mean, you think about the kinds of things that are going on in the States right now with you know, the elections and the, and the divide that we see between uh, parties or you know, Antifa that's out on the street and just like attacking you know, families and young kids and just terrorizing people. It's just a... Uh, a wicked, crazy, and violent time right now. And it says here that all flesh, in verse 12, had corrupted their way. Now, the word for corrupted speaks of, you know, they destroyed or annihilated or, or ruined these things. This is what the people were doing to themselves. Everyone had fallen into that trap of the devil where they just rebelled against God and gone their own way, but yet what did it do? It just corrupted them and brought destruction, annihilation, and ruin. That's what sin does. It destroys and ruins all the good that God has for us. And so because the people were destroying themselves, God decided simply to put them out of their misery. God said to Noah, verse 13, that the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence to them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. It's as though God here almost it's like an act of mercy at this point, where he says, the people have gone so far that they are just destroying themselves, and I'm going to put them out of their misery. It's almost as though it's an act of mercy at this point. Verse 14 now, we see the preparation of the ark. God says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. Now, we're not exactly sure what gopher wood was at this point. If anybody's got an idea, please let me know. I think someone said that, you know, Noah named it this because God was just saying, go for this wood, go for that wood, go get that, go get this thing over here. Noah just says, okay, more gopher wood here. But the ark now, as it's being built with this unknown wood, some have suggested it's um, cypress wood. I don't know. I'll throw that out there, but we don't know. Some translations, I believe, uh, label that as cypress wood. Does anybody have that in their translation? Cypress wood? Okay, good. Pardon me? NIV. NIV, okay, yeah. So we don't know exactly, but it's made of wood. Let's just go with that, all right? And now the ark, as we saw, many rooms in it, able to hold, you know, all the different animals that would be brought on. And then Noah's told to cover it inside and out with pitch. Now that word for pitch is the Hebrew word kofar. That's equivalent to the word kafar, which later was translated as atonement. This protective covering for the ark, which preserved it to the storms and judgment, is a wonderful picture of that atoning work of Christ in our lives, which covers us now 
inside and out of, in his righteousness, preserving us and delivering us from any judgment to come. That's that atonement we have, this idea of at one minute now with God through Jesus Christ. We're protected, we're safe, we're saved because of that atonement. I'm so thankful for that. And that word pitch that's used in the ark, I think it's just a great foreshadowing and picture of what is gonna be done in and through Jesus Christ. Verse 15, let's read a few. We're gonna read to the end of the chapter, I think. Yeah, let's read to the end of the chapter here, verse 15 to the end, and then we'll make a few comments here. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits and it's height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and you shall finish it to a cubit from above and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower second and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. Verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourselves of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it to yourself and shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. So awesome. So we've all got these, you know, views of Noah's Ark from Sunday school, flannel boards or cartoons and such. Here's how many people picture Noah's Ark. It's right here, this little, you know, tub that's flowing through the water and animals are just hanging out and, I mean, you get any wave coming on that thing, that thing's going over, right? That's trouble right there. But this is kind of the, the view. And, and, and sadly, here's the thing, is when people hear the story, unbelievers, they hear the story, they get this concept, and they go, give me a break. You think Noah built this ark and took all the animals and, 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 and sailed through, and it's only them that survived, and now today we have all these animals in the world and spread out all around even Christians, I've heard, have denied this biblical account because they can't perceive this idea that God would send a global flood and one family bringing the animals under the ark, we would have what we have today now. And, and to that, I, I just kind of go, do you know who God is? I mean, this is coming from believers that question this. I'm like, do you not believe that God is able now, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, the ark, because God in his word preserves the measurements of the ark. Now, the ark, it says here, was about as long as a 30-story building, uh, building is high. So as high as the 30-story building, it's about the length of this ark. It tells us that it is, um, let's see, 300 cubits. Now, a cubit was about 18 inches, all right? by the standard of a, a man's arm from the elbow to the fingertips, all right? A standard man's. My cubit is like about 15 inches, all right? But a normal man's, about 18 inches. So, uh, so when you take 300 cubits, you would uh, time sat by 18 inches. You got 450 feet, all right? 450 feet long, and it's about um, uh, 45 feet high, 
and 75 feet wide. So what's described here is not really a boat, but a well-ventilated barge meant only to float and not to sail anywhere. It's an ark, after all. It's a chest, not a ship. And so this refers to almost kind of the shoebox shape of a vessel that, that many people have fallen out into, you know, um, marines and, and, and different, um, you know, structures of ships that they've realized this is the perfect kind of sailing size of getting through ocean waters with these waves coming along and stuff like that. So it's very interesting. Um, Answers in Genesis has just recently put together this full-scale replica of the ark, and here's a picture of it. So this is more so what Noah's ark would have looked like in using the description we see right from God's word here. The ark, roughly the shape of a shoebox, is plenty large enough about the size of the Titanic, and had a cubit-wide opening 18 inches all the way around the top. It was not until 1858 that a boat bigger than the Ark was built. The Ark was certainly big enough to do the job. If the Ark carried two of every family of animals, there were around 700 pairs of animals. But if the Ark carried two of every species of animals, there were around 35,000 pairs of animals. And the average size of a land animal is smaller than a sheep. The ark could carry 136,500 sheep in half of its capacity, leaving plenty of room for people, food, water, and whatever other provisions were needed. So think about this for a second, because again, we get this concept of how did Noah you know, have room for all these animals? Well, first of all, he didn't need to bring adult-sized animals into the ark. Noah's not having to go and gather, you know, two full-size, adult-sized elephants and go, well, dang, I mean, that takes up a quarter of the ark. No, that's bringing two baby animals, two baby elephants, right? Dinosaurs. Were dinosaurs on the ark? I believe dinosaurs were on the ark. And he would have had to just bring baby dinosaurs. Now, that's perfect because, again, they wouldn't have needed as much food as an adult, would have been less waste because of less food, they're babies. And now when they come out of the ark, they're that much more able to go and, and reproduce, being at a, at a young, fertile age. So, I mean, just think of the concepts that we oftentimes have where it's like, how did they fit all these things? Well, it would have been very simple to do. And then Noah's told to bring, in verse 20, notice what we read there, of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing in the earth after its kind. Two of every kind. So you see the repetition of that idea of kind. This means that Noah was just required to bring two of the dog kind onto the ark. He didn't need to bring every type of breed of dog, which I don't know how many there would have been, but bring two dog kind, which then again could have produced Wolves, coyotes, and hyenas, and all these different kinds. Bring two of every, of the cat kind. Two of the cat kind, not every breed of cat. Not, you know, two of every breed of horses. Bring two of the horse kind. That would have greatly, again, diminished the size of the amount of animals that were brought onto the ark. Two of every kind. Over the past several years, some creationist researchers have been involved in extensive study of the original animal kinds, and their estimate is even lower, less than 2,000 kinds of animals that would need to be on board. Admittedly, this is only an estimate, since many of the original kinds have gone extinct and are only known today from the fossil record. Also, 
We don't have sufficient data regarding every type of creature on earth today to ascertain all of the original kinds. Nevertheless, we see that there wasn't needing to be the extent of the animals that we have in breeds or in variations today, but rather just two of every kind. And all the variations now come from those two kind that came off the ark in Noah's day to where we have all the different kinds of animals and variations of animals and breeds today. Now notice something here. It, it said in, in verse 16, in the middle of verse 16, set the door of the ark in its side. Guess what here? There was just one door to the ark. If anyone wants to get in, they got to come into that one way. Hey, so too, if anybody wants to come to the Father, it's through one way, Jesus Christ. He said that he's the door, John 10, 7. It says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's only one way. And it's funny how a lot of people like to say, well, why does there only have to be one way? What if I want to go in a different way? And yet, on the ark, there's just one way. I don't think anybody would have been battling over the floods coming, and if they were smart enough to get on the ark, would have sat there and looked at the door and said, is that the only way out of the ark? Now, they would have been running up that ramp to get inside that ark. They don't care where, where that door is. They're going to take whatever opening there is for them. And there's only one. So too for us. Somebody throws me, if I'm drowning in the ocean, somebody throws me a life preserver. I'm not looking at this life preserver to go, where's this thing made? You know, where's this thing been? What's the durability? I'm not, I'm not questioning. I'm just grabbing a hold of it. And Jesus has come to be that one way for us. And we need to be faithful to follow him and cling to him. And I love what we read at the end of verse 20 when we talk about all those kinds. It says that all these different kinds, two of every kind, God says to Noah, will come to you to keep them alive. Do you, do you see that at the end of verse 20? That these animals will come to you. Noah doesn't have to become some kind of wrangler or hunter to gather all these animals. Could you imagine having to track down a cheetah to get on the ark? It's like, oh my goodness. That's, that's not... I can leave that one out, right? I'll just take a cat and then I'll become a cheetah down the road. I don't know, but he doesn't have to be a rank. God's gonna bring all the animals to Noah. God's the one that's sovereign and in control and he's leading all this through. God is just requiring Noah to be, to be faithful. And we see in verse 22 that he's being just that. Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Oh, I pray that the Lord finds us faithful, that we continue on this great walk with the Lord, regardless of the days that we live in. And it can get discouraging, my friends, right? It can get difficult. It can get hard. But I pray that we continually walk with the Lord, that we enjoy the grace that God's given us in sustaining us, in giving us life, not just life now, but life eternal. And that we continue to proclaim, you know, the the grace and the mercy of God that we continue to proclaim in this world that seems so far. Look at Noah, and we'll talk about this more next week or next time, but Noah for a hundred years is building the ark. People are ridiculing him. And only his family gets on. And do you think Noah in those hundred years at times felt like, ah, God, is it really worth it? Nobody's listening. Do I really have to go through with this? But Noah persevered. And I believe in doing so, he just continued that walk with God 
enjoyed the Lord day by day, regardless of his surroundings. And I pray that we take that same attitude and focus in our lives. We say, Lord, and the days are evil, but I'm gonna, in these days, just continue that walk with you and enjoy your presence, knowing that, God, you're, you're preparing a time when I'm gonna be with you. I look forward to that day. In the meantime, may we continue to be faithful and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ in a, in a dark world. May we be that light that shines in brightly to our surroundings. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this study tonight and this man Noah that we can glean so much from and learn of. And what an example to us, God. And we think about our day today. As you said, Jesus, just as the days of Noah were, so will be the days of the coming of the Son of Man. When you come, Lord, you're gonna see a similar, similar circumstances in the world and we see that. We see this comparison to Noah's day so clearly and, and Lord, may it cause us all the more to just look forward to your soon return. But with that in view and in mind, may that propel us and encourage us to get out in the darkness and to shine this light for you, to be a witness of you, to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that life is found in you, Lord. You come to bring deliverance, salvation. And so may we be found faithful, Lord, in these lives you've given us. So I pray these things now in your name, Jesus. Amen.